This morning we are beginning our series in the Gospel of Matthew, and over the next few weeks we're going to be doing the first four chapters of Matthew as we look at the early life and beginnings of Jesus as well as his ministry. And as you start and you say, all right, I am excited to read about Jesus and we're going to you know, get into our Bibles this year and learn about him. And the first thing you encounter is 17 verses of all of these names that you've never heard of. And you immediately look at your page and go, well, can't we just jump to verse 18 and just start right there? In fact, I'm imagining Steve is super grateful that I didn't say the reading this morning was verses 1 through 17, which is where the majority of our time is going to be. But I thought I'd show him mercy and <laughs> not do that to him. So sometimes when you think about the, the life of Jesus and you hear is the gospel of Matthew kicking it off and telling us about him. It's easy to just wonder, well, why all the sea of names? Why do you start with this? Why do we need any of this? And I want us to see that this really does play a very important factor in the trajectory of the explanation of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Over the next few weeks, as we look at the first four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see in these four chapters that Matthew is trying to reveal to us who Jesus is. We need to know who he is and his purpose is going to be revealed to us in these early chapters. In fact, his purpose is even revealed to us stunningly enough in the city of names that is given to us in those first 17 verses. You will notice that it tells us that the, the genesis of the genealogy or the genesis of Jesus in verse 1 and, and, and ver, verse 1 of chapter 1, it begins with saying, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Immediately jumping to these two people, obviously he is not the direct son of Abraham nor the direct son of, of David. That was thousands of years back when you're talking about Abraham. And a thousand years back when you're looking back to David, why are we starting with these two people as the introduction to the life of Jesus? Uh, these two people were given some very important promises. David was told that when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's a promise to David that somewhere in his lineage, one of his descendants, an offspring that will come from him is going to ultimately establish the kingdom, establish the throne, and it's going to be an eternal throne. And so you have that terminology, then son of David, that as we go through the gospel of Matthew this year, we're going to see sometimes people start calling out son of David. Well, why are they calling somebody a son of David? Well, because of this promise, this was considered a messianic promise. Somebody down the line who is an offspring of David 
is going to come and he's going to establish God's eternal throne and he's going to establish God's eternal kingdom and he's going to rule. And so here is this beginning by Matthew to say, here is this beginnings, this genealogy of Jesus. And I'm putting forward to you that he is the son of David. He is the fulfillment of this expected promise of a king and a kingdom. Along with that, with son of Abraham, a promise was made to Abraham that to Abraham, all the peoples of the earth were going to be blessed through him. And the reason why that's really important is the promise was not merely to Israel, but that all people, all nations, everyone was going to be blessed through the arrival, enthronement and kingship of the Messiah when he comes It's going to change everything. And so Matthew, as he begins to describe for you about who Jesus is, he is starting off by telling you he is the fulfillment of promises. He is everything that all of the scriptures from Genesis to Malachi have been waiting for and have been hoping for and have been looking for. Now, you might then consider then that this is also Amazingly enough, the last genealogy you'll ever come across is Jesus' genealogy. And you might be grateful for that. All right, you know, sometimes you're in the Old Testament, you read a lot of genealogies and you go, all right, already. And the genealogy tree all terminates on Jesus, telling you something important. It's all been funneling to him. That's why we've been keeping track of names. That's why we're caring about all these people from Genesis to Malachi. That when Matthew and Luke open and say, here's the genealogy of Jesus, and it doesn't matter after that. It's all pointing to him. Now with the names, I want you to notice something else. As as you want to skip over those names, you'll notice that it tells us something about how we're supposed to look at these names. Look at verse 17. Matthew 1 verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations and from the deportation to Babylon from to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew is telling you right out of the gate, I am using a selected genealogy. And you'll notice that there are movements in this genealogy that he begins by saying, I'm recording for you 14 generations from Abraham to David. And you might just say, that's like the best of times. That's the patriarchs. That's when things are going well. It's the rise of the kingdom. Everything is going forward with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we're moving all the way up to David. He becomes the pinnacle of this. But then the next set, he says, goes from David to the deportation to Babylon. You go, if the front end was all about how things were rising up for God's kingdom and the establishment of it from David to the deportation tells you that it's the demise and the collapse of the kingdom. The deportation to Babylon happened to Israel because of their sinning that would not stop. And so they are carried away into captivity. They're taken off the land. And so within this genealogy, you have the the best of times as we go up to David. But then he records from, from David to Babylon. That's when things fell apart because of sins. And then the third set, he says, we go from the deportation of Babel to Babylon 
to the life of Christ. If you went from verse 12 to verse 16, I would just call those the dark days because unless you grew up in the pews, none of those names are recognizable. And if you grew up in the pews, one of those names is probably recognizable. And the rest of them are just like a sea of nobody. So you just kind of go, who are these people? We have no tracing of them. We don't know who they are. They don't represent anything important. Is just simply names. And so after the deportation of Babylon, you were just in the dark days awaiting for the somebody to finally arrive after the list of nobodies as we're looking for a Messiah to, open, to, to come finally to bring about a rescue and bring about the hope for Israel. And so this difficult genealogy sets up an interesting picture because it is really the, the very history of Israel, the rise and creation of Israel, the demise and collapse of Israel, and then the dark days waiting for a Messiah, a Savior to finally arrive. And also tell you, it's a stunning genealogy because it's a relatable genealogy. When you look at the names that are listed in here, you might be surprised at some of the names that are listed and the names that are not listed. There's a lot of heroes that you would probably expect to be put in the list that are not here in the list. And there's a lot of names that if you had your choice, you'd probably want to scrub out of your genealogical record. There's a lot of interesting names that, that are laid out here. And what you have then in this genealogy of Jesus is not just a listing of heroes. Look at all the great people that Jesus came from. Look at these massive names and, and, and these great faithful people that Jesus comes from. That's not what this list is all about. In fact, if you quickly go through the list, it doesn't take long like verse two to realize we've got some really terrible people in this list. You've got Jacob on this list. We might want to kind of hop over him a little bit. He spends a lot of his life being a deceiver and a terrible person. Next name in the list is Judah. Go read Genesis 38 and you'll read why you don't want anything to do with Judah. He is a vile, terrible person. He is not somebody that you would go, oh, yay, Judah, he's a really good guy. He's a terrible individual. That's why most sermons skip over chapter 38 doing the life of Joseph. We don't want to talk about this guy. He's terrible. So you've got him in there. We've got Rahab and Tamar. They're notable harlots in the scriptures stated about them over and over again. I want you to notice one thing that's really brought out. Look at verse 6 and the wording that's given there. David was the father of Solomon. And notice it doesn't say by Bathsheba. No. We're going to really bring out the, the sordid details here. David fathered Solomon, who was the wife of Uriah. <laughs> We're not even going to put in Bathsheba's name and hope you forgot how that all came about. We're going to call her the wife of Uriah to remind you of the scandal that goes around that whole scene that happens in the life of, of David. You have Manasseh listed here, the worst king that Judah ever had. He is so awful that the scriptures state over and over again, He's the reason for the deportation to Babylon. He's the reason for the collapse of the kingdom. It is his influence of 55 years as a king over Judah that God finally says, that's it, you're done. There's no rescue, there's no hope. It's off to Babylon you go. 
or even putting in the genealogy itself at the end of verse 11, the deportation to Babylon at all. I mean, who wants to put that in your genealogy? We were so bad that we got taken off of our land, had the promises seemingly nullified and sent to a foreign country. Even that's put in the details. And then as I mentioned, once you cross verse 12, you just really have a list of nobodies. Who's Azor? Who are the, who are these people? It's just a list of nobodies. And what you have then in this genealogy is a messy genealogy. It's a wreck. There is no intention in this genealogy of hiding the black sheep. There's no intention of hiding sins. There's no washing over the bad and only remembering the good. Let's only put forward the good story of Jesus. It is a list of terrible people that are given here. And it is a list of nobodies as well. And I think in that way, we can call that a relatable genealogy. You may have black sheep in your family. You may be the black sheep of your family. You might have a whole line of family members that are sinners, deceivers, sexually immoral, adulterers, scandals, scandals, all that like. That's in Jesus' line too. That's his whole background also. That's where he came from too. Was that kind of messy background, messy family, messy situation, a lineage that you might want to hide, but here on full display. And it reminds us then why this is here is because it's setting forward a purpose. You'll notice in verse 21, we're told that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus itself means the Lord will save. And now here is this picture of his background. He has a genealogy that's relatable, a list of sinners, a list of scandals and a list of nobodies. And the whole point of having a group like that listed for you is to remind you and to show you the purpose of Jesus coming is because he is going to save the people from their sins. It is one aspect that the writer of Hebrews certainly intends for us to consider when we're told that Jesus had to be made like us in every way. He had to be made like us in every way. If he's going to be a merciful and faithful high priest who's going to stand in service to God and make atonement for the sins of the people, he's got to be like us. And I want you to see his family's like us. It's a list of nobodies, it's a list of sinners, it's a list of messy people, it's a list of scandal, it's a list of terrible things. And he had to be made just like us in every way if he's going to be the savior that we ultimately need. When you have in verse 21 this statement that he is going to save his people from their sins. I think one of the big questions that has to come out of that is, well, how is he going to do that? Call him the Lord saves. Call him Jesus because he is going to be the one to save people from their sins. Well, how is that going to be accomplished? And that's where verses 22 and 23 come in. Verses that are often disconnected from verse 21, but the connection needs to remain. Notice verse 22. All this took place 
to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This is an important quotation that's given to us here. And having it disconnected loses the heart of what this is all about. This quotation comes from Isaiah 7. And we'll, Lord willing, next week get to talk more about the scandalous circumstances of this quotation and what is happening here. But for the sake of time this morning, to grasp the idea of the quotation is this hopeful message that God is going to save us because God is with us. What an interesting combination. Verse 21, I want you to call his name Jesus because he's going to save people from their sins. Well, how is he going to do that? He's going to be with us. He's actually going to come to us as the means by which that rescue would happen. He is going to be able to do what no other human is able to do. He himself will be the rescuer. He himself is going to come on behalf of the people. He is the one who has the power to do what no human could ever do. God himself must come and give the answer for our salvation. And friends, that is what the point of the virgin birth is. You'll notice that's what's tied in here in verse 22 and 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Please notice, there is nothing in this paragraph that says anything about the reason why we need a virgin birth is to keep him sinless. That's not the point. That's not the effort. That's not the concern here. We certainly need a sinless one to be the offering. But that's not what Matthew's talking about here when he brings about the virgin birth. Rather, you will notice the point that's being made here is in verse 23. The virgin will conceive a bear a son and he's going to be God with us. This is the way that he is going to be able to be the savior. This is the way he will be able to save us from our sins. I thought Peter Lightheart said it really well, and I will quote what he says. He says, the point of it is this. Our salvation does not come. Indeed, it cannot come from inside humanity. We are not capable of saving ourselves. God has to come in from the outside if we're going to be saved. That's the point of the virgin birth, is that nothing within humanity can save us. It has to come outside of us. It has to be God coming to us. That's the only way we can be saved. We can't save each other. We can't save ourselves. Our hope cannot be found in that whatsoever. There is no hope and there is no salvation within humanity. And so this miracle happens to indicate the nature of our salvation. That the way our salvation has to come is that it can't be from us or within us or from any other human. It must be outside of us. Which John's gospel 
he does his introduction about God and about Jesus in that very way. When he said, in speaking about Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But notice the way it's framed. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's a picture being given about salvation. That salvation is... And being the children of God can't come from human lineage. Can't save that way. Nor can it be by our own works, by the the will that we might be able to put forward in the flesh that we're going to do it. We can't do it. We've tried. We've all failed. All have sinned. And fallen short of God's glory. And nor can it even be by our own desire. We can't overcome our sin problem. And that's why the way Jesus is born sets forward the mechanism, our salvation. We can only be children of God by being born of God by the will of God. It has to be outside of us. Now, if you're new here, I say this all the time. If I had another half an hour, I would do, but I'll give you the one minute version. Our culture is trying to tell us that your salvation's inside of you. If you could just find it in you, and you be the true you, you find who you are, you'll have joy and hope and salvation. And God says, no. Your hope and your salvation is outside of you, and it's outside of all humanity. You need somebody outside of you and you need somebody outside of humanity who can give you the hope and the salvation you need. It can't come from within. That's the point of the virgin birth is trying to show it has to be outside of ourselves. And we live in a world right now that's trying to tell you and tell me it's in you. You can find it in you. Well, you keep trying and you're going to still be just as empty as you were. Because your hope and your satisfaction and your joy and your salvation can't come within you, nor can it come from anybody else. We try to place so much of our hope and joy on other people. You know what happens every time? Other people let you down. We just place all of the weight of the world on their shoulders. They're going to be our hope. They're our salvation. They're our rescue. They're our joy. They can't do it either. The whole message of the beginning of Jesus is to show your hope is outside of you. And your hope is outside of other people. Our hope is only in God. God is overcoming our sins. God is overcoming our family line. God is overcoming everything in this world so that we can be the children of God. Let's talk about one more picture about this genealogy that we don't want to read. I think it is interesting that you could call this this genealogy ultimately a reversal genealogy. There are a lot of things that have have been noted about this genealogy that sometimes come into play. You'll note that there are women that are listed in, in in this genealogy, and that was certainly somewhat uncommon 
uh, in those days. It is also interesting to note that there is Gentile inclusion in these names. You have Rahab, who is uh, an outsider, a Canaanite. You have Bathsheba, the Hittite. There are, there's Ruth that's listed in there, who's a Moabite. You have already pictures of a Gentile inclusion that's being given here. You also have inclusion of scandalous names. We've already talked about that. People like Judah and Tamar. These are all scandalous people. Bathsheba's in here. But I want us to ask, what is the consistent message that is found in all of the women's names? It is interesting that of the names that are listed, they all terminate on Mary. Verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the last woman that's named here in this list of women names. You have a Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, but they all terminate on Mary. So what is the consistent theme between them, because it's not that they're all Gentiles. And okay, yeah, they're all women, but, and, and it's not that they're all scandalous. That's not true either. Ruth seems to be the faithful one who is given of high praise. What's the key point? And I believe the key theme and the key message of why these women's names are included is to indicate a reversal of circumstances that proclaims vindication. A reversal of circumstances that proclaims vindication. Here is Tamar's name who's listed. She's a harlot. And yet you might remember the text makes the point that she is declared more righteous than Judah in that proclamation. There is a vindication that actually happens to her in spite of her sinful circumstance. And so her sinfulness is overcome. Rahab is a harlot, but the scriptures constantly want to vindicate her for her faith. When the spies come into the land, she is the one who says, we've heard about you and we know that the Lord is with you. And that is why she helps those spies in fact, to such a degree to keep them alive that she's rescued later when Israel comes in. Not only is she rescued, but she actually becomes part of the inheritance and becomes part of the people of Israel. And so the outsider, the harlot with the sinful circumstances by faith becomes included into the family of God. Ruth is also an outsider. She's a Moabite. And her hopeless situation is reversed. And she is pictured as redeemed. As now she becomes part of the lineage. In fact, it's through her that we're only a handful of generations to the arrival of David. And so she has a reversal where she is hopeless and seemingly is going to be left for dead. Her husbands are dead and she is far from God, it seems. And yet she will be reversed in her circumstance and brought in. How about Bathsheba? Scandalous circumstances. And she's an outsider. Hittite with Uriah. And yet, it will be her son that will build a house for the Lord. It will be her son, a reversal and vindication for her as well. And the one that we will talk about next week you have the scandalous circumstances of Mary vindicated as well. 
Here is Mary with child, but as was just read for us, she's not married yet. And this looks bad. And yet this also can be reversed. And vindication is going to be shown for her. Vindication and reversal is shown for all of these women. And friends, I believe that is the intent of these first 17 verses of why this genealogy rests here for us. Is because it's the same message to you. It is the very same message to you that your circumstances can be reversed. Your hopeless, sinful, scandalous circumstances can be overcome. Whatever it is in your life, you're looking at a list of names that are filled with mess. And yet through the mess, God is greater And he is able to erase the stain of sin. He is able to redeem and allow these people and call these people children of God and have them belong to the family of God. And that is really the meaning and the message of the arrival of Jesus. Is that God is with us. He has come to save us. And he is able to do what no human can do. I like using this term that I think has become common. <laughs> but the idea is flipping the script. That you have your life trajectory going this one way that seems scripted. And in the names of these people that you're looking at, the script is flipped. A massive reversal happens and everything changes. And everything about their life trajectory now goes a completely different direction. And the point that is given to us is that if you would belong to him by faith, he can do the same for you. That your salvation's not in you, your salvation's in him. And if you would follow him and you'd give your life to him and you would seek him, He can change your circumstances just as radically as he changed the circumstances of these people. And he can bring you into his family. Sometimes we can sit there and think, well, you have no idea how bad my circumstances are, how bad the sinning is. And I hope I gave you just a little bit of a flavor of there's nobody that's really crushing the righteous dial in this list here. There are a whole list of sinners and there's lists of scandals and there's lists of outsiders and all of them are brought in to the family of God by faith. He can do the same for you if you would allow him to reverse your life and change your ways. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this listing of names that you have here as an introduction so that we can meet your son. And Lord, sometimes it can feel like in our lives that we are far inferior, that the sins are too much, And the past is too difficult. Sometimes, Lord, we can just feel like we are locked in a direction that we don't want to go. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to be encouraged by the picture of the names that are listed here. How you took every single person, every single name that's listed, and was able to change their lives. That you were able to overcome sin. You were able to reverse circumstances and use these people to accomplish your purposes and fulfill your promises. Lord, I pray that we would be strengthened by faith to seek you with all of our heart in such a way that you would do the same for us. And Lord, we thank you for your son that makes it where our sins can be overcome. Thank you for sending your son so that he could save us from our sins. Lord, thank you for sending your son to show us that salvation is outside of ourselves and only in you. Lord, help us to seek you and you alone as we strive to live this life. Lord, help us to ever be mindful and never forget that our only hope is not inside of ourselves and our only hope is not in each other. Our only hope is in you. Help us to live our lives that reflect that the hope comes from you and you alone. Lord, impress upon our hearts the need for faith, impress upon our hearts the need to change our lives. And Lord, we pray that as a new year arrives and as you give us breath and life in our very being, that we would use the days ahead and the year ahead, if it be your will, to serve you far more fully in the days ahead than we have in the past. Cleanse us from our sins and help us to live the days ahead in service to you with the hope of salvation, the hope of rescue, and the hope of eternity with you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're going to sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus. I hope you'll think about your circumstance and your situation this very morning. Where are you with God? Where are you as you approach this new year that you would be giving your life to him and follow him to see the hope that is found in him and him alone? And that I hope that you would consider the wisdom and the value and the directions of this world do not give you life, do not give you hope, do not give you freedom, they do not give you rest, they give you more pain, more emptiness, and more lack of joy. Would you come to him today to turn away from your sins, to follow Jesus with all of your heart? You can let any of us here know how we can help you. If you want to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, we can do that today. If you need prayers for the forgiveness of sins, we can help you do that. You can either let one of us know or you can come forward while we stand and while we sing.